You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. When to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Jerusalem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for how marvelous you are to us. You have preserved your word so that we, your children, could study your truth, your ways, and your character and be enthralled by you. We glorify you tonight, Lord Jesus, for you are our King, and we behold you in all your beauty. Now, Lord, will you help me to speak your truth with grace to your people? Sanctify me to be your servant now. And Lord, prepare the soil of our hearts to be good soil so that we will receive your word and understand it and then be fruitful. Spirit of God, speak to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are in the middle of our Advent series where we commemorate the themes of Advent this Christmas season. And so for tonight, tell the person beside you the title of the sermon, Joy to the World. Since last year, you know, it was not easy for us to celebrate. It seems like this year, everyone is a little bit more excited than usual. Uh, I have seen so many people personally on social media, especially, uh, showcasing their trees, decor, going to Christmas market, and just generally enjoying the fun activities in person with other people. And culturally, this time of the year has always been a great time of the year, especially if you are in my neighborhood. Uh, on our street alone, it feels like a mini version of Winter Wonderland. Everyone has all these lights and snowmen and reindeers uh, and all these pretty Christmassy things. People really get into the festivity of things around this time. And I'm sure for some of you, you guys have neighborhoods as well right, in your areas or in schools or wherever, where they're celebrating, because generally the people enjoy celebrating Christmas. For some of you, like myself, uh, you are taking a break from work, right? Maybe you're traveling or you're spending time with family and friends. 
But I also know that some of you want to be with your family abroad, and that may not have worked out for you this year, and it may have dampened your Christmas mood. Know that the Lord sees your heart. He understands where you're coming from, and that we, your church, we are still here for you to celebrate with you, and pray ultimately for the Lord to keep your joy this season. Now, the question is, what kind of joy should we have during Christmas? And yes, I know most of us are thinking Jesus is the joy, right? I'm, I'm hoping everyone's thinking that, all right? You're right, Jesus is the joy, but it, to be fair, it is not so easy all the time to have that in mind and in our hearts because, let's be honest, we often idolize other things when it comes to Christmas, music and all, and forget Jesus altogether, even though we know and say that Jesus is the reason for the season. And perhaps the reason why we forget about Jesus or put so much attention on everything else but Him, because it's because we lose that joy of our salvation. We lose that joy and, it, and what it means to have God the Son be born a human. I would encourage everyone tonight, whether you have plans for Christmas, no plans, or even failed plans, to be joyful about the Lord this season. My desire is for us to leave this place with a heart filled with joy and a mind informed about the reasons provided by the angel in our passage on why we can be joyful despite anything. The context of our main passage should be familiar to the most of us. There were these shepherds out in the field at night taking care of their sheep, and then an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Of course, they were afraid. These were angels. But the angel said, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of great joy for all the people. But why does this good news bring great joy? What does it mean for us to have great joy? To understand all of this and how it applies to our lives, we will go through what the angel said immediately following that verse in verse 11. Our attention will be in verse 11. And from that verse, I hope to show you three reasons. Three reasons on why the good news is in fact great joy for all of us. But just again, for quick context, 10, 11, and 12, I'm going to read it. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Okay, with that context in mind, let's read verse 11 one more time. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here is the first reason we can observe from verse 11 on why the good news brings great joy. The good news is for everyone. The good news is for everyone. When the angels spoke to the shepherds, the angel made it a point to communicate that the message was to them, the shepherds. And in the context of the previous verse, verse 10, it is for all the people. Now, good news is predicated on the assumption that there is, in fact, bad news for the shepherds. And again, in the context of verse 10, for all the people. What is the value of having good news if you don't require good news? If you are not in a bad situation, if everything is already good for you, what does the gospel mean? Or what value does the gospel bring to a person who is content? The angel is bringing good news only because there is bad news. And this bad news has been fleshed out from the pages of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation that people... That people, the children of Adam, are at their core sinners. This is a frightening reality of the condition of the natural man. The scriptures make every effort 
to show that mankind is lost in their sin and not merely broken by it. We see these days uh, preachers reducing or diminishing the effect of the fall, the effect of our sin, to mere brokenness or discontentment or something that we lack. We see pulpits miserably fail to be clear that the brokenness we face in our personal lives, homes, and even in society is only because of the personal and individual sin that we contribute and perpetuate through our thoughts, words, and actions. So, in application, it is right for us to say that people, for example, who have broken marriages, have broken marriages because people sin in their marriage. And people sin in their marriage because people are sinners by nature. And people are sinners by nature because people are born as a child of Adam. And that last statement is true because in the scriptures, it teaches when Adam fell into sin in the garden, we, his children, his posterity, consequently fell in Adam because Adam is our federal head who represents us and quite literally produced mankind. This line of thinking that starts with, you know, that example of the broken marriage that starts with, that begins and knows the root cause is the sin itself and not the outcome, is missing in some of the preaching material accessible to everyone online. And so, unfortunately, church attendees or professing Christians or Christians who wrongly depend on social media for theology have a warped view of what the good news is really about because they have a wrong view, and more precisely, an incomplete view of the bad news. Please hear me. Just please hear me. I'm not saying that the Bible does not deal with the brokenness part. But what I am saying, and I think is missing, is that the Bible goes deeper than that and deals with the root cause of that brokenness, namely the sin in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, If you believe that you need Jesus only or mostly because you have unfavorable circumstances like a broken marriage or relationship or being uh, in an unjust institution of society, whatever that is, but not for your own sinfulness that could directly or indirectly impact those situations, then you have a distorted view of the good news and the bad news. Let's hear what the Lord Jesus has to say about this. Matthew chapter 15, verses eight, chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. This is what it says. This is Jesus. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Dear ones, the bad news is not merely the consequences of our sin. The bad news is primarily that people love to sin. The fallen man's heart is corrupt in sin and with pleasure leads one to the gates of hell. If people now were gone and checked by the common grace of God manifest through the personal conscience, the family unit, and a moral state, men and women would be violent, selfish, perverse, and abhorrent creatures of the dark. But thankfully, God in His mercy tolerates all of us and keeps those hedges up so that a person practices morality even though they do not subscribe to Christian morality. In another way, God is restraining the evil in the world and making sure that people are not as bad as they could be. So, for example, Hitler could have been worse. However, if God judges a nation or a church, a community, or any one of us, he may start with lifting those hedges from its place. As the Bible says, and I paraphrase, God's judgment today, passively, would be when he lets people do what they think is right and not what he reveals to be right, what he reveals to live by 
in Scripture. And you don't even need to look about this in the distant past. Just look at the last few years. There has been a great push by our culture, by secular society, in promoting everyone to live with their own moral compass, doing right as per their own views. What you think or you feel is ultimately right and is ultimately good for you. You know this. We hear this a lot now. You share your truth. You live out your truth. uh, You express your truth. And you see this kind of language, this kind of false teaching being pressed upon even the little ones who are in school or watching cartoons or TV shows, shaping their minds to think that they are the arbiters of truth and they should have the final say on how they ought to be. Even the phrase, quote-unquote, your truth, is a sleight of hand in language by the culture to give more credit to a person's perspective or opinion than what they are due. Because all perspectives, all opinions, and all experiences can be evaluated. But because the language now in the culture is your truth, though it is subjective to that person, that individual, the word truth inserts credence to being objective, so their opinion, experience, or claims are not up for evaluation by anyone. If the boy cries wolf, even though there is no wolf, we should not question it, because it's his truth. Are you following me? This is what's happening in the culture today, right? You take that and you see that in application with a lot of topics. And this can leak into the church. And it can take a hold of how we speak and how we view the world, dear ones. Brothers and sisters, this is a sign of God's judgment on the culture. Everyone is living out their own truth today. But we know as blood-bought believers in Christ. We know that no one, as per the Scriptures, has the monopoly on the truth, since the truth is an objective, not subjective, objective reality that is external, not internal, external to all of us people, and is only found, as per the Scriptures, if you're a Christian, as per the Scriptures, in the pages of the Bible, and precisely in the person of Jesus Christ. For he claimed, and I quote, that he is the truth. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus claimed that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. And from him and through him, we can evaluate various perspectives on any subject by anyone. And we Christians are not immune from living by our own standards, our own truths. What we idolize, how we spend our time, our money, and so much more shows how much we all are responsible for and suffer from wanting to live our own truth, our own, live on our own terms, and not based on God's Word. So when the angel says, for unto you, for unto you, there is great significance because the message of the good news is for All of us. All of us who love to do what is right in our own eyes. This is the most inclusive message ever. And that should bring us great joy. The message of the gospel is for those who are caught in sin, living in sin, and even reveling in sin. Ask yourselves this. Do you ever think that you don't need the gospel as much as before because of how far you have come in your walk with Christ? If so, that itself would be a sign of pride in your life and a lack of dependence on and gratitude for the grace of God because everything we do is by the grace of God as per the scriptures. Now, on the flip side, 
Do you ever think that you're not qualified enough to be a recipient of this message? Be careful. It is true, in one sense, that we are not worthy of God's grace. But it doesn't disqualify us from hearing the good news and a call to repent and believe. So we have to be careful not to pity ourselves, not to pity yourselves where you glorify your weakness in sin over and above God's grace. The scripture doesn't teach that either. For where there is sin, grace abounds much more. And we sing this all the time here. His mercy is more. (laughs) It's always more. To paraphrase Jonathan Edwards, your sin is what qualifies you to receive the proclamation of this good news. The implication of this proclamation by the angel to the shepherds is that our sin does not have to be the final say for us, dear ones. The guilt of our past does not have to be our burden today. The evil that you have done or are caught in even this morning does not have to define your future because the good news is for people like you, people like me, people who are caught in sin. It is for you, it is for your family, it's for your children, it's for your loved ones, it's for all of us who are caught in sin because the angel proclaimed for unto you. A child is born. And that's humbling. The good news of the gospel from heaven is there for even the worst of us. This is why we should have joy in our hearts tonight and this season. The good news is for everyone. So coming back to our main verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here's the second reason why the good news brings us great joy this Christmas season. The good news was planned. The good news was planned. Born this day. Jesus was born 2,000 some years ago. So not last year, not yesterday, not 4,000 years ago. 2,000 some years ago. The timing is very important to note because the people of Israel who always heard from God throughout their nation's lifetime did not hear from God in a long time before Jesus came. And this is known to be known as the 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testaments. They had the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament. Everything was there. This was their Bible back then. They had everything and they had everything to be ready to receive the Messiah when he comes as the Lord's servant to accomplish the salvation of his people. However, although they had their Old Testament, their Bible, in those 400 years, they grew hard-hearted and they did not anticipate the coming of the Messiah because when Jesus came, we know what happened. Not many people recognized him. And in fact, they got him crucified. But this was planned to happen as such, to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus would be rejected by his own Jewish people and then be taken to be killed like a lamb for sacrifice. This was the plan of God. Israel's rejection of the Messiah would consequently and fortunately open the door of salvation through the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, to all nations and not just the Jews. That's why Matthew and Luke took the effort to write the genealogy of Jesus. I know we skip that sometimes, but we shouldn't, right? They took the effort to write the genealogy. Why? It was to show the intricate plan of God to bring His Son into our world through that Jewish family tree. And even in that genealogy, God hints that His plan of salvation was for all people and not just the Jews. How? In Matthew's account, God included Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Individuals who were either non-Jewish or were connected to some non-Jewish family. So, the timing of the birth of Christ was planned by God. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And this is what it says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That ancient days title, that's something in the Old Testament is reserved for Yahweh. It's coming from Bethlehem. So God had also planned that the Son of God should be born a human in the city of Bethlehem, where David is from. Now, why David? Of all the Old Testament saints, why David's town? 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. And this is what it says. And this is God speaking through the prophet Nathan to King David. Okay? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God planned to establish the kingdom of David's offspring, a kingdom that would never end. Okay, so keep that in mind. Now turn your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 8. And this is God, the Lord, speaking directly to Abraham. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Keep that thought in mind again about Abraham's promise of the offspring, or better yet, just hold that page in your Bible and then flip all the way to the New Testament, right? Flip all the way to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Galatian church. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, with all of these verses in mind, God planned in Genesis to bless the whole world, all the nations, not just one, through one family, Abraham's family. And Abraham's family grew and grew and grew and became the nation of Israel. And in the course of history, Israel's history, that nation had King David, a man after God's own heart, to rule them. And the entire Old Testament is building this momentum towards the fulfillment of these promises given to Abraham and to David. For Abraham, someone who is going to bless the whole world and have an everlasting possession. And for David, someone who's going to rule as king forever with authority and power. We also heard, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago that God himself in the garden prophesied that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent while he bruises the heel, right? With all of that being said, when the shepherds heard the proclamation from the angel, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, they knew what they had just heard was monumental. 
It is the fulfillment of the plan of God that was promised and prophesied throughout their Bible, their Old Testament. They knew that they were in a space and time where heaven declared the fulfillment of those prophecies. For behold, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David has come. He has come to crush the head of the serpent, bless the whole world, and establish an everlasting kingdom. This was planned by God since the very beginning. So that means for us here tonight, that means even before we were born in the last century, and I'm assuming everyone's less than 100 years old, even before the last century, right, God planned to send His Son to live and die in our place so that we might live free from sin and for His glory. The depth of this reality is clearly articulated by Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where he says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing! The good news was planned because God loves us while we were still sinners. So before we were even a Christian, God planned to save us and bring us this good news of great joy. This Christmas season, let's ask ourselves, do we find joy that God planned our salvation? That God sent His Son in the appointed time to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, the city of David. Live a righteous life. Die on a cross be, and be resurrected and now be seated at God's right hand so that we, we who were once spiritual orphans, are now adopted as the children of Abraham, the children of promise. Romans chapter 9. And we who were once in the kingdom of darkness have now been transferred into the kingdom of the light, ruled by King Jesus, the offspring of King David. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And we who were once dead in our trespasses have now had the debt of our sin be canceled at the cross of Jesus, who disarmed and publicly humiliated Satan and triumphed over all of them. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. Do we find joy in all of that? That God planned to save us? Or have we lost it because of our day-to-day affairs and packed schedules with entertainment? Like the seed that fell among thorns and got choked when it tried to grow. Or have we lost the joy of God's good news to us because we have been going through a tough time with our relationships, children's health, parents' well-being, unemployment failures, whatever it may be? Have we lost our joy like the seed that falls on rocky ground who receives God's word in the beginning, but when something tough happens, fall away? Dear ones, the good news was planned and we Christians are the result of that plan. If you are in a dry season in your spiritual walk where you don't feel the need to pray and study the word and live obediently for God, nor want to come to church on a regular basis and contribute in the life of the church and fellowship with the saints, I pray that this truth will be so refreshing for you tonight to stir in you a renewed passion and joy for how carefully, think about this, how carefully God, intricately God, worked throughout human history and so many people and families, and especially Jesus Christ himself, to bring about your personal salvation. That means God really cares about you. God really loves you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I've alluded to this already. The good news brings great joy because of who it is about. Here is our final reason from the text on how the good news brings great joy. The good news is Jesus. The good news is Jesus. 
We see three titles here that the angel says to the shepherds. First, it is Savior. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says this, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What a profound meaning behind the name Jesus. The good news is about Jesus who will save his people from their sins. A theological conviction of our church doctrine is that Jesus did not merely come to make every person savable and hope that some will one day say yes to him, but that Jesus, in fact, did live for, purchased, obtained, secured, and accomplished the salvation of God, the Father's chosen, predestined, elect people. And this salvation work accomplished by Jesus is then applied by the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people in human history. So, because of Christ's work, God's elect, His chosen people, will convert to Christianity. They will repent of their sins and put their personal faith in Christ and endure till the very end. How? Because the very enduring faith the chosen people of God have is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, included in the new covenant which was prophesied, which was promised in Ezekiel chapter 36, and then accomplished by Jesus at the cross. Because remember what Jesus says, and whenever we take communion every month, remember what he said in Luke 22, verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you, so Jesus talking about his upcoming suffering, is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant, it was prophesied and promised in Ezekiel. That includes faith. And that's why, and that's why we, the church, ought to go to everyone. We need to go to everyone and proclaim this good news. Yes, of course, Jesus you know, instructed all of us to go and preach the good news. A second reason why is because of how amazing the work of Christ is. Because we can have confidence. We can have confidence knowing that if the hearing person belongs to the chosen people of God's plan, then it is a guarantee, not a possibility, guarantee that they will repent. They will bend the knee and turn to faith in Christ in their lifetime. And we will be by God's grace, the instrument, like the angel, to bring good tidings of great joy. It does not matter how well we can be an instrument, though we must aim to be better instruments, but as long as we humbly and prayerfully be the instrument of God, then we will be used by God as an instrument to convert sinners. So yes, work hard to learn apologetics, meaning to give a defense of the Christian faith. Do not think this is exclusively the responsibility of the pastor or the elders or the deacons. As per Apostle Peter, we are all called to make a defense of our Christian faith. So we have to do the hard work to be a better instrument in the hand of God. We have to do a better work, a better effort in trying to reason for why we believe what we believe. But only recognize and rely on the Holy Spirit who can move the sinner to repentance. It's not the eloquent words, okay? It's not the eloquent words that moves the sinner to repentance, but the wind of the Holy Spirit that breathes new life into dead bones and resurrects an army of saints. Dear ones, ask yourselves, who are you hoping to see saved by the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you feel like it is impossible to persuade and convince someone of the truth of God's word? And so you altogether just avoid the conversation and quite frankly, confrontation. Are you diluting the gospel message so that it is more digestible and easier for the dead sinner to become alive in Christ? Do you spend more time talking about your personal testimony than the testimony of Christ himself? 
Where is your confidence? Is it in your theological precision and apologetic expertise or in the Holy Spirit who raises the dead? Are you even functioning these days as an instrument in the hand of God for salvation? At your workplace, your school, your family and friend circles? Are you an instrument? In fact, who are you being an instrument for if not God? My brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost every person who draws near to God. And every person who truly draws near to God is chosen by God. And Jesus lives up to this name, for he indeed is mighty to save. Secondly, we see that Jesus is called Christ by the angel. The title Christ share the same meaning as Messiah in the Old Testament. And so both these titles mean the anointed one, okay, the anointed one. In the Old Testament, anointing was done when a person was called to be a king, a priest, or a prophet. For example, Samuel anointed David to be the king in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Aaron and his sons were anointed to be priests in Exodus chapter 28. And Elisha was anointed to be a prophet in 1 Kings chapter 19. But here's the key. The Old Testament revelation, okay? The Old Testament revelation said that God was going to bring to us a better servant. He was going to send the servant of God who would be the better king, the better priest, the better prophet, the Messiah, the anointed one. Saints of the Old Testament were anticipating the coming of this Messiah, the coming of the Anointed One, the coming of Christ. And behold, we in the New Testament know that this is Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is the better prophet of God because He spoke with authority and taught the Scriptures, healed the sick, cast out demons, and further, He Himself is the very Word of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God spoke through prophets in the past, but now has spoken to us by His Son. So that means Jesus is the final Word from God. Jesus is also the better priest of God. In the past, there were priests who were mediators between the people and God, and they had to offer sacrifices on a regular basis. But this new high priest, Jesus, the Christ, needs to only bring one sacrifice, his sacrifice, his death on the cross. And he now intercedes for all kinds of people from all nations that are from all of history, not just our present, but our past and the future, who have yet to be born. And finally, Jesus is the better king. Like we saw earlier, Jesus is the son of David, whose kingdom is forever and will rule forever. Matthew 28 says that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to who? Jesus. And Philippians chapter 2 says that this name, whose name? Jesus' name. The name of Jesus is above every other name. To summarize, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. And the last title shared by the angel to the shepherds was Lord, which simply means that Jesus is the master. Even when we confess our sins and pledge our allegiance and faith to God, we confess two things, if you've noticed. We confess, first, that Jesus is our Savior from sin, and now, as Christians, He is our Lord whom we obey. We confess that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And Jesus said that if you love Him, you will keep His commandments. If you are saved by Jesus, you will pursue to obey all of His teachings. But if you are not a Christian, my friend, I implore you to bend your knee. Bend your knee to the Lordship of Christ, to the God of this universe. You stand in opposition today to His Majesty. And you're guilty of cosmic treason because of the sin in your life where ultimately you don't do anything to the glory of Jesus Christ. But this Lord is a kind 
and gracious and merciful master. He willingly came down to die and face the judgment of our sin on the cross so that we don't have to be condemned for eternity, but rather enjoy the benefits of his perfect life, his perfection that he obtained by living a perfectly obedient life to God. He is now resurrected bodily, his whole human body. He's resurrected and seated at the right hand of God. So I implore you, if you're not a Christian, as someone who is no, no better than you, repent and turn to faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus asked you today, like he did uh, Peter, who am I to you? What would you say? What would you reply? Would Jesus simply be a... Also, it's not just what you say, it's also how he functions. Because sometimes we will say that Jesus is the Lord of my life, but he functions very differently in our life, right? So with that in mind, would Jesus simply be a vending machine? We've heard this analogy before. Is he a vending machine where you put some coins of prayer and good works and hope to get a good life? Good things happen to you? Would Jesus be like a genie in a lamp where you expect, expect him to grant all of your desires and wishes? Would Jesus simply be uh, a moral person that you can follow to be a good person to everyone in society? Or, or is Jesus your prophet? Someone you listen to and obey even when no one is watching? Is Jesus your priest? Someone you trust that will intercede for you and be your advocate before the holy God so that you don't have to live with guilt of your past and shame and know that your, life, your eternal life is secure in God's hand and He will sanctify you because of His interceding, of His intercession. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king, someone you pledge allegiance to as a citizen of his glorious kingdom so that you will test everything that the world throws at you and ensure it aligns with the standard of God's kingdom before you catch it and you will not let anyone defame the name of Christ because of your allegiance, no matter what the cost. The good news is about the Messiah who was promised, the anointed one of God who, we, who would be the fulfillment of all that God had promised for his people and for his glory. The good news is Jesus. Isn't it amazing that in a single sentence, the angel communicated great theological depth of the good news of great joy? How can we not find joy when we know that the good news is for everyone and that it was planned by God, and finally, is Jesus himself, who is the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord. Dear ones, in this Christmas season, when we celebrate with our families with food and drinks and music and games and fellowship, it's, it's good, do it. But take 15 minutes or more to gather everyone in the household and then reflect on these truths we heard tonight. Take some time to remember why Christmas is such a joyful time of the year. Take that time to celebrate together in your household and say, for unto us, for unto us a child is born. In the city of David, who is the Savior, Christ the Lord. Psalm 51 verses 10, 11, and 12 says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let this be our prayer every day. We will go through tough times, of tribulation and temptation. It's a guarantee as long as we are on this side of eternity. There will be times where we will unfortunately even fall short and fall into sin. But it doesn't have to kill us. It doesn't have to be habitual. 
It doesn't have to overcome us. It doesn't have to have the final say. We can pray like David prayed in Psalm 51. Restore us, O Lord. Give us a right mindset. Don't cast us away from your presence. Nor take your spirit of conviction away from us. But Lord, restore, restore, restore to us the joy of your salvation. May we, by the grace of God, be like this angel who brings the good news of Jesus to everyone and proclaim joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, we come to you now to stir our hearts to ponder on your truth. God, we pray, forgive us of our sins and create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Lord, many times we go astray from the path of your righteousness. We get choked with the pleasures of this world or fall away with the suffering of this world. But Lord, we pray that you will save us from our sin, save us from ourselves, and save us to yourself. We pray that you will restore the joy of your great salvation, which is for everyone that you have planned since the very beginning and is realized in the person of Jesus, who is our Savior, Christ, and our Lord. Will you help us to be like the angel and go to our family and friends and colleagues and share this good news of great joy? Help us to be an effective instrument in your hand, an informed and humble instrument in your hand. And teach us to rely on the Holy Spirit when we share the gospel. And we pray when we share the gospel that your chosen people would be saved. We are praying that all people would be saved. Our hearts desire that no one, not a single person would be left behind. But God, we believe that you will save your people from their sins, as it says in Matthew. God, we bless your word. We bless it. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.